Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to All Rather Mysterious, the podcast that aims to unlock the mysteries of the past with the key of fact. My name is John Rain. My name is Eleanor Morton. My name is David Reed. Please join us as we present to you mysteries that have baffled the world. You had any noises? What about um, a door creaking? Uh, no, uh, you don't have to do this. That weird kadook that yeah, lights going off makes for some reason in films. <laughs> All Rather Mysterious. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um... <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. Pop crazy youngsters, and welcome to the final part of Chart Music 58. I'm your host, Al Needham. They're David Stubbs and Taylor Parks, and oh dear, we have put some right shit on your shoulders in this episode, haven't we? Fucking hell. Gilbert O'Sullivan's erotic buffet, Nolan tentacle porn, and the unedifying sights of DLT going full PLP, as in Pepe Le Pew. There's still a little bit more to go, so come on, let's go to our loins and dip our hands back into the shit bucket that is this episode of Top of the Pops. Hello, Matthew. Hello. Are you well? I'm surviving, thank you, yes. Now, I want a close-up of your face on there, because everyone's got to look at it, because you are actually starting with Doctor Who as his new assistant this coming Saturday, right? That's right, yes. Are you going to play some sort of monster, or are you a normal human person? Um, well, I come from another planet, but I look fairly normal. Well, you look as normal as I do, which doesn't say a lot, really. <laughs> You've got a record you're holding yeah. in your hand there, which is the, not Doctor the Doctor Who, Who theme. Certainly is, yeah. On close-up on camera three, I don't believe it. That's superb. Well, Matthew, we wish you all the best. We'll all be glued to our sets to see exactly who you disintegrate and <laughs> such like. Thank you for joining us on Top of the Pops. You can, you can even go over and shake hands with the girls, because you're too small to kiss them. Leave that to me. Um, right, I want you all very carefully to have a look at this. Travis, sporting an expression like a lion achieving climax has his arm round the throat of a young lad. 
Why is the 18-year-old actor Matthew Waterhouse, who is about to take on the role of Adric, the new assistant to Doctor Who, this Saturday on BBC One? Oh, Taylor, you, that uh, must have excited you. I told you there'd be more for the loser massive coming up, didn't I? <laughs> it's Adric with DLT's arm clamped around his neck, an equal opportunity space invader, if nothing else. <laughs> yes. At least... This time, Adric has been trapped, restrained and tormented by a bearded evildoer. He's managed not to get a hard-on. Another in-joke <laughs> for the loser massive there, which I what? don't expect anybody else to get. Right, explain. It's not funny when you explain a joke, Al. What, he got a bunk on during filming? No, it's a, it, honestly, it's a Doctor Who in-joke that if I explain it to you will not seem funny in the slightest. So okay. I'll just you'll be there, drummed out it? of the secret society, won't you? Uh, <laughs> but this is quite the clash of worlds. Like, look, for anyone mm. who doesn't know, Adric was an alien dweeb stroke twink introduced to Doctor Who <laughs> by the new producer supposedly in an attempt to connect directly with the young male audience who were clearly semi-correctly perceived as annoying, sulky, immature, effectively sexless little brats who were good at maths and very, very bad at acting. It would be wrong to say that Matthew Waterhouse was the worst actor ever to appear in Doctor Who, because that's a bar set so low, it's located somewhere in the mantle of the earth. But (laughs) he might possibly be the worst actor ever to appear as a regular character in the series, provided you don't count Sylvester McCoy as an actor. And why would you? Um, (laughs) But probably the most entertaining thing about Adric is studying the contrasting ways in which the two doctors that he worked with visibly express their real-life irritation at having to share a set with him. Tom Baker, who by this point is three-quarters gin, won't even look at him, even when he's supposed to. Uh, And when he speaks, Tom just continues to stare offset and makes an expression like he's just caught a whiff of decomposing fish. Uh, Tom's taking it out now. <laughs> Whereas Peter Davison, being a very professional character actor, tries to channel some of this annoyance into his character. So it's actually right. the Doctor who's getting the hump. But there's mm. no mistaking the visible and immediate shift up and down in his enthusiasm as he switches between scenes with a usually skilled and well-respected guest star uh, and then back to the misery of the TARDIS with this whining incompetent. Anyway, spoiler alert, in the end, Adric gets blown up in a spaceship, (laughs) crashing into prehistoric Earth and wiping out the dinosaurs because tediously in Doctor Who nothing that's ever happened in the history of the world doesn't turn out to be the product of alien interference Um, and all his companions in the TARDIS when he dies go oh no and then in the next episode they're like oh look there goes Concord again Uh, many reports of young fans cheering his death and slightly ashamed to say that I was one of them oh Taylor 
Yeah. Oh, can you imagine Travis as Doctor Who? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Groping a Cyberman. <laughs> Yeah. Initially, with this um, encounter, yeah. I thought that he'd mistaken the geezer for a girl, actually, and then had to kind mm. of, you know, and he got his hand around and he realised, fucking hell, and uh, <laughs> had to sort of find out a bit about him and, uh, you know, as is the top of the pops wants, improvise something. <laughs> I love how at the end as well, he says, well, you can't kiss the girls, you're too small to kiss the girls, that's for me. And it's like, yeah, to me, also, yeah. too gay, as it happened, but... These yeah. are the days. Oh, really? Yeah, these are the days before most of us realised that almost everyone who's ever been involved with Doctor Who is gay, um, <laughs> or stop to wonder why that might be. I mean, we were loath to admit it back in the day, but it's possible that the show may be a little camp. <laughs> After inquiring whether he's going to be a monster or normal looking. He then encourages the lad to shill something else, the new single of the Doctor Who theme tune, available in the shops now on BBC Records. He then tells us to look at something he doesn't even bother to mention by name, Enola Gay by Orchestral Manoeuvres in the Dark. Formed in Wirral in 1978, Orchestral Manoeuvres in the Dark was the brainchild of Paul Humphreys and Andy McCluskey, who had known each other since junior school and went on to arse about in various bands in the Merseyside area, forming a distaste for rockism and a love of boffinisation. After recruiting a TIAC reel-to-reel tape machine, which they called Winston, they made their debut gig at Eric's in Liverpool one month into their career, supporting Joy Division. Not only did it help them land a one-shot single deal with Factory Records, their debut single Electricity, but they were also approached by someone in the audience who invited them to support him on their next tour, Gary Newman. Although Electricity failed to chart, it put them right at the front of the burgeoning synth-pop movement and helped them land a deal with Din Disc, and their next single, Red Frame White Light, got to number 67 in February of this year, and their next single, Messages, got to number 13 for two weeks in June. This is the follow-up, and the only single cut from their second LP, Organisation, which comes out tomorrow. Despite it being banned on Swap Shop, it entered the top 40 at number 35 a fortnight ago, an appearance on Top of the Pops helped it to soar 17 places to number 18, and this week it slithered up 6 places to number 12, and here's a repeat of that studio performance. Oh, many things to unpack here, chaps. I think that Swap Shop ban is is 50% to do with the song being about bombing folk mm. and 50% because Noel Edmonds didn't want to say gay on Swap Shop. <laughs> I was going to say this record significantly ups the already quite large number of times the word gay has been heard on this book, which I think is good because it does act as a counterweight to uh, the display of toxic heterosexuality, which kind mm. of dominates the episode. Mm. So yeah, who knew? OMD's first gig supporting Geordie Division. Tough gig. You know, you got you got to jolly the crowd up for them, aren't you? Yeah. And also there's just this there was always this kind of clash culturally between Liverpool bands and Mancunian bands and Mancunian bands always had very laconic names like The Fall, Magazine, The Passage and Liverpoolian bands always had very extravagant long-winded names, you know, like Hamby and the Dance mm. and Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark or whatever, you know, for instance, it was Dalek, uh, I love you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was yeah. my favourite. But I suppose 
what well, in, in a sense what they do have in common is they're both coming both Joy Division and OMD. It's not about America anymore. They're products of Europe um, and mm. or you know Europe influenced stuff. You know, this stuff's come from obviously Kraut Rock and Cabri Voltaire, Throbbing Vissel, Thomas Lear, Robert Reynolds and the Normal, even Gary Newman. And now this is a particular distillation. It's now I mean a band like Orchestral Lived in the Dark confirmed that craft work are the new fact of pop life. Um, as is, of course, mm. the huge rate shadow of nuclear war. And, yeah, there's various things, you know, in playing here, I guess. You know, like you say, with Enola Gay, so there's that sort of effeteness is ironically referenced. Um, the fact that, as I said earlier on, I mean, I, like a great many people, was absolutely shitting myself about um, nuclear war. It was on everybody's mind if you were a teenager. Yeah. I mean, you know, CND's membership went up tenfold around this time, Um Oddly enough, it was a track I learnt to dance to, probably, such as my dancing ever was, was Elola Gay, because it's nice, it's got these little kind of right angles, and right angle again, shuffle, shuffle, right angle, so, um, yeah, so it set my dance... You know what Andy McCluskey's your dance teacher, it's not a good... Well, maybe not, maybe not, but, you know, it laid a foundation. Is that the section you cut out of your book? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I didn't mention exactly. it in the book. Yeah, yeah, that might be a bit too self-indulgent. Yeah, because, you know, it is time for the rock expert to explain himself, because you are, David, the author of Mars by 1980. Yeah. The definitive story of electronic music, as said by me just then. Yes, that's and right, yes. You paid OMD as much attention in that book as you did to that Pogues album you reviewed. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, yes, let's yeah. come and explain yourself because virtually every synth act that sprouted up in the early eighties, in interviews they go to great lengths to praise OMD for demonstrating that this sort of music was chart worthy, mm. mm. and it was going to be around for a while. Yeah. So I think you know from that point of view, you know they were definitely important, and I suppose in the book I was probably concentrating on previous pioneers and innovators like your Edgar Vareses and Stockhausens or whatever. Nah. Um, probably didn't give them enough attention. But, you know, I had a word count. All, you know, I, I start the beginning of the book starts with an apology for all the kind of people that don't really get a proper mention, including Jean-Michel Jarre, although, to be honest, in his case, I don't really have many regrets about that, to be honest. Mm. Um, and also, I think I wanted to kind of privilege uh, people that hadn't enjoyed a lot of chart success or whatever. I mean, you know, there is this constant tendency today to equate pop success with validation yeah and that you know then, then you kind of ex- explain backwards you know so i want to perhaps to focus on people like suicide who never got remotely near the charts or whatever and mm. give them a bit of the old lion's share or whatever i mean i did sort of talk a lot about depeche mode i guess because um i was just fascinated by how um a group like depeche mode who paul morley once described them very provocatively to annoy the iron maiden fans as hard groups like depeche mode <laughs> but in a sense there was a hardness about them there wasn't actually a durability an unlikely durability about them um yeah but um but yeah but generally i suppose yeah i didn't probably give um omd the um attention they might have merited actually uh. but but that's the case with quite a few bands around this time. And especially since they did teach me to dance. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's right, David. Talk up your um, your expanded <laughs> second volume. Of your well, this is it, yes. Yeah. It's crying out for an expanded yeah. volume. Jive Bunny as well, mate. <laughs> no, yes, I know, yeah. yeah. God. <laughs> I actually went slightly mad, actually, with the book. Any time I'd hear anything electronic, I'd think... Why isn't that in the book? Shit. Mm. He was playing Mario Kart one day, and I was thinking, why haven't I mentioned the Mario Kart um, <laughs> the yes. tunes? I mean, that's significant, isn't it? Mm. Why aren't they in there? Definitely. 
Dan, but OMD, you know, I mean, by 1980, for, for lads like me, you mm. know, we, we'd had Gary Newman, who was a, a bit rockier. Then all of a sudden, mm. OMD come out, and they're, they're a pop band. And yeah. you forget how weird this sounded coming out of the radio. Yeah. yeah. Just this weird Casio shit going on. That's right, yeah. Because this is a time that, that you could prick about on those Casios in WH Smith. Yeah, mm. yeah. And not get very far on them. But it's like, oh, fucking hell, look, look what this can do. Yeah. And I suppose the thing about me at that point is I was 18 and I was already listening to, you know, the stock hours and the stun rars or whatever. So perhaps, this, you know, although I enjoyed dancing to them, I perhaps never didn't quite re- see what you say, you know, the, the sense of the originality that this was actually unprecedented in the context of pop. Mm. Well, my problem here. I mean, aside from the fact that this actual version of the song takes second place in my brain to the version that comes into my head whenever I hear mention of the footballer Idrissa Gay. Uh, (laughs) The thin and icy sound of this record is all very nice. But once Dare has been released, what's the use of it? You put this Mm. next to Open Your Heart or something, and it's like putting... You Were Made For Me by Freddie and the Dreamers next to I Want To Hold Your Hand. It's like they're both doing the same newfangled northern thing, but one of them is the sun and the other is a warm baked bean. You know, the similarities are superficial and the difference is significant. And I also have never understood Andy McCluskey out of OMD, which... Mm. is not to say that I find him intriguing. I just, I don't understand what he thinks he's playing at. Why does he perform like that? Um, It makes no sense. Why does the bass line of this record do absolutely nothing? It's like Sid Vicious on bass or something. What's he playing at? And the singing is abominable too. And he's there bopping away as if he loses money every time someone thinks he's cool i mean what's his game i don't understand it what are they doing they got the school jumpers and the you can do the cube haircuts and it's it's like he thinks that unusual automatically means original or interesting whereas in fact yeah unusual can just be the result of really bad incoherent artistic choices made by people with no vision, which might just be what's happened here. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Well, I suppose in a way that OMD are kind of, you know, pointing ahead, you know, towards the 80s and electropop, but also very much of their time. And, you know, and what you're talking about, that dancing, everything was kind of quirky and jerky and a bit Lenny Lovitchy and a bit Elvis costello in. Mm. That was just sort of the element of the time, really. And they don't really escape it, I guess, in this. I guess, but it's very striking. I mean, even after watching a lot of early 80s pop acts perform, the sheer cuntiness of his performance is like... I don't don't even know what it's meant to suggest. Normally, you look at a singer doing his thing, and he obviously wants you to see him as a a tough guy or a sex god or a a lovelorn, sensitive type, or just, you know, an energetic, fun-time party person. But you watch this carry on. You can't even guess. Do you know what I mean? What it is, it's like he looks like he might end up filing for a living. Or on the other hand, in two years, you might see him hammering on a cockpit door, shouting something incomprehensible. You know, it's like he combines the dreariest aspects of sanity 
and madness. And is there anything worse than being weird but boring? I don't think so. Mm. Do you think it would be better if he'd stood stock still? Yeah, absolutely. And remained silent. That would have been perfect. (laughs) Because the thing is with OMD, they're really early performances. He could have been doing anything. I mean, he's obviously copped a lick or two from Ian Curtis's stagecraft. Mm. But whenever you saw them uh, on the telly at first, your eyes were immediately drawn to the fucking reel-to-reel tape player. Yeah. It's like, look what they've done. They haven't got a drummer. They've got that. And they, they're doing it and they're getting away with it. Fucking hell. Mm. I mean, people say that it's a, it's a long-running joke. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You know, whenever they do the the retrospective documentary talking head things from the early 80s, oh, you've got to mention Andy McCluskey being the worst dancer. But that's because it's fucking true. Yeah. I have had fantasies about Andy McCluskey and Roland Orzabal getting married mm. and being at their wedding and just wondering what the first dance had looked like. <laughs> can you imagine that, fucker? I, mean, I can see your point about, you know, old Roland Orzabal, yeah, his particular... Uh upper body antics but uh, oh it'd be glorious yeah i mean in this case he's he's got a base in front of him and it's it's almost as if the rest of the band go look just give him this this will curb the worst of the excesses <laughs> but i don't know I, I don't know how to feel about this it's clearly a decent song and it's interesting that you know someone's done a jaunty song about dropping a nuclear weapon on some japanese folk but I never got on with OMD at the time, and I, I still find myself struggling to get over with that initial hatred. Mm. To me, they were the sort of band that were liked by older boys who wanted racing bikes and cameras for Christmas. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. My mate at the time, Gormy Dorne, Mark Dorn, he was well into OMD, and this is where my, my dislike of him stems. Because <laughs> he was just playing them all the fucking time, going on about them all the time. He was the one... I believe I mentioned him in a previous chart music. He was the one who had OMD printed on the back of an Arrington, which really offended me. Yeah. <laughs> the lettering of the D 
was a bit disjointed, so it looked like he got Omo on the back of his Arrington. Mm. Ill advised. And I, I put it around the school playground that it was actually supposed to be Homo, but yes. the H had fallen off, and I, I got thumped for that. So, yes. yeah. Yeah. I, so I started putting around the joke who likes OMD? Only Mark Dawn. Ah, Think about it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, 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 very good, that very good. Shop, mate. But this, this, this Raising can happen, shop. and this can affect you know having a lifelong sort of adverse effect on your appreciation of a band. And I mean, Simon's always getting at me about ELO, but I mean, I constant battles with my brother. I mean, he's always trying to play out of the blue on the mm. family record player when I was trying to play with Faust. And so yeah. you know, it's things like this that can kind of affect your opinion of a band. Throughout the rest of your life, really. Yeah. You know, you'll never forget, you know, old Mark Dawn. He's going to be like a like a shadow, like the shadow of nuclear war. He's going to, you know, yes. a giant shadow of your appreciation of animal. I'm a bit distressed by this idea that um, Andy McCluskey being perceived as such a terrible dancer, given that yeah. it was him that yeah, set me on the road. That, this could possibly explain 30 years of embarrassment, I suppose, of me on the dance floor. You know, that I've set on completely the wrong path. Taylor, you're always going on about kickstarting new movies. Let's do a remake of Dirty Dancing with Andy McCluskey and David. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Roller Doors are bought and what's his name out of the fine young cannibals. Yes. Mm. But look, we're talking all about Andy McCluskey here. Come on, let's talk about the other members of IMD. <laughs> I've forgotten that there were these two other blokes in OMD as well. In fact, I I, yes. I forgot about them while they were actually on screen um, with yes. their grey V-neck jumpers. Like the other keyboard player, who isn't the one that you think of as being in OMD, looks like a civil service whistleblower found dead in his greenhouse. <laughs> and the drummer... Looks like he's just a bit annoyed that he's had to put down Mini Munchman for a couple of minutes. I say, <laughs> OMD, fuck him. That's what I say. I would rather listen to Stu Francis than OMD. Oh. At least he could crush a grape, which I reckon <laughs> is probably beyond these failed milk monitors. My flatmate, Ricky Cleano, I mentioned before, I used to put photos of cocks under his yes. pillow. Um, he knew Mao, who was the drummer in Orchestral Maneuvers in the oh. Dark. And when we were going through our period of sitting at home getting caned, watching uh, Top of the Pops on UK Gold, every time OMD would pop up and he'd piss himself at what Mao was wearing that week. There was one period where he had this kind of like black netting over him, like a jumper made out of black netting. And yeah, he pissed himself for a good 10 minutes. So yeah. <laughs> Good on you, Mal. I remember Smash It's printing a joke that I think someone sent into the letters page. Right. What do you call a man vacuuming his front room at three in the morning with a bird of prey on either shoulder? Mm. Hawk Kestrel Man Hoovers in the Dark. And I can honestly say I've had more joy out of that joke than the lifetime's work of OMD. (laughs) who somehow own houses and <laughs> can replace their shoes as soon as holes appear in the soles. It's a funny old world. I won't miss well, it. I, I'm, just, I'm, I'm still a little bit stunned, I must have been subdued, by the idea that for 30 or 40 years I was dancing the wrong way. 
So the following week, Enola Gay jumped four places to number eight, then dropped one place to number nine, then nipped up to number eight one more time, but no further. It would go on to be a number one single in Italy and Spain, despite, or possibly because of, the fact it was temporarily banned on certain continental radio stations due to the gay bit. The follow-up, Souvenir, the the, the problem went, no, no, it's all right, it's not gay, it's about killing loads of people. Oh, that's all right then. (laughs) The follow-up, Souvenir, did even better, getting to number three in September of 1981, sparking off a run of three top five singles on the bounce, and they'd have 12 more top 40 hits until they split up for the first time in 1996. But two years later, on the advice of Carl Bartos of Kraftwerk, McCluskey put together a group to showcase the songs he couldn't use for OMD, and they grew up to be Atomic Kitten, who would have 13 top 10 singles and three number ones, between 1990 and 2005. Yes, Kraftwerk is to blame for Kerry Katona. <laughs> Didn't fucking hear that mentioned during the tributes for Florian Schneider last year, did you? <laughs> <laughs> Subscribe to our podcast. You know, it's all about how to get the most out of your partner. And we're partners. So we know all about it. It's good. Get it wherever you want to get it when you go and get it from your podcast place. Richard and Greta. You know. You know. That's another day for you there, and it was from Orchestral Manoeuvres and Art number 12. I've got one of the legs here, it's Pauline. She's bigger than she looks on telly, isn't she? <laughs> this is Disco, our little motor show theme. Travis, back amongst the kids, now has his hairy paw clinched around the waist of a new victim. Pauline out of Legs and Co. After mocking her size, he introduces her and her mates cavorting to D-I-S-C-O by Ottawan. Yeah, the worst bit about that bit with Pauline. Well, no, the worst bit is when Travis says, I've got one of the legs here, as he also wrote in a taunting letter to police. Um, (laughs) And then when he releases her from his grip and she dances away... He goes, hee, 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 and does a little point like he was looking at a cartoon mouse, which, yes. which Pauline shrugs off with the 
weary air of someone working in a klaxon factory who just doesn't hear the klaxons anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Formed in France in 1979 by the Franco-Belgian production team of Daniel Van Gogh and Jean Kluger, who had previously worked with Sheila of Sheila B. Devotion fame, Nana Mascore, Sasha Distel, Petula Clark, and was currently masterminding the rise of the Gibson brothers, Ottawan were a duo formed as a French response to Boney M, with the Caribbean-born Patrick Jean-Baptiste and Annette Ltis miming to some session singers. Originally recorded in French when it was put out in 1979, with the English version on the B-side, it ripped through the Euro charts, becoming a top five hit in Austria, Belgium, Germany, the Netherlands, Norway and Switzerland. And after it made its way to the continental countries in the summer of 1980, it was released over here, entering the top 40 at number 28 at the end of September, then soaring 20 places to number 8, and this week sees its third week at number 2, held off for the first two weeks by Don't Stand So Close To Me by The Police. It's been on top of the pops three weeks on the bounce now. It was the outro music the week before and the week before that. But instead of going to the video, which they played a month ago, here come L-E-G-X and Co. <laughs> they are L, lovely ladies. They are E, ever so elegant. They are G, gyracious. They are S, super saucy. They are co very good chaps we've come to warm to legs and co and they're all over the many episodes of charmies Hmm. but oh dear they've been dealt an exceptionally bad hand here haven't they yeah yeah i i i mean travis at this point is just getting worse and worse he honestly needs taken out with some sort of blow dart full of anti-testosterone sedative of some sort (laughs) yes just atrocious really the groping and poor old legs and co i always thought there was an understanding normally that they get to perform at a remove that they're not within groping distance and i feel that like that has been breached on this particular sordid occasion. Definitely. Um, there's a sort of do not touch um, thing that has been grossly breached. So I do feel for them. I mean, it's not. I mean, and I think that's sort of obviously must sap their will a little bit, I suppose. But the outfits, the tartan skirts or whatever, the kilts, what's, what's that all about? It's, it's, um, I mean, it's an invidious task that they've been, you know, set. Um, I mean, you know, for Legs & Co, it's... It's a life of invidiousness, I suppose, in lots of ways. But uh, it's not one of the greats, definitely. Um, I mean, Ottawan, it's sort of thing... My mum used to uh, dance to this at her Keep Fit class in, you know, in, <laughs> exactly. when she was in the 50s. And I think that's kind of the sort of record. It is, really. I mean, it, it's the ultimate schlagerification of disco. It's very shape up and dance with Peter Powell, isn't it? Oh, yeah, very <laughs> much so, yeah. Very much so. But there's something slightly arbitrary about the... You know, the um, Legs & Co costumes there. I mean, you know, the line dancing boots. I mean, maybe they are slightly appropriate. Yeah. Maybe there is there is a sense of this is disco as line dancing, I suppose. They're wearing kind of like white boob tubes, tartan skirts and white cowboy boots, which is known nowadays as the porn outfit, isn't it? Yeah, it's just brazzers, isn't it? Yeah. Basically yeah. What but the whole, this whole thing is Legs & Co finally reduced to being the mute, attractive women who stand near new cars at motor shows. It's their inevitable creeping fate, you know. And, I mean, Mm. it's painful to see. 
I mean, fuck. It's it, awful. Mm. They're underneath some bunting and they're surrounded by men in cars. The whole thing looks like the ceremonial opening of a dogging event in the festival of Brexit, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, that so, is the awful moment when you realise that these cars aren't unoccupied. You see the arm outstretched, yes. um, you know, like caressed around the side of the car door and realise, fucking hell, they've got blokes in these things. Yeah. Making the headlights on the TR7 go up and down as well, man. It's oh, yeah, it's so fucking sinister. <laughs> it's like chucking out time at the local dance school, isn't it? It's awful, but it just gives it this weird, eerie effect of a kind of close-up drive-in Legs & Co event, you know, up close and creepy. <laughs> it's, 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 it's awful. I really feel for the girls on this one. Yeah. yeah. And the fact that they've got all the cars there means they've got mm. about the length of a plank to dance in. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. there's nothing they can do but but proto line dancing. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean this routine I think has been choreographed in a bit of a rush. Mm. In that mm. they're just doing mad Lizzie moves and by the end yeah. they're reduced to pairing off and wagging their fingers at each other in time with the music, which is mm. it's like the secret flick Colby signal for uh, I've run out of dance moves and it's already yes. Tuesday you know it's like mm. blinking her eyes in Morse code while delivering the hostage message you know <laughs> but maybe we shouldn't be too harsh because this is still what a lot of Italian primetime television looks like today yes. <laughs> except, <laughs> with, except with less boxy cars um, yes. <laughs> and women who don't look like they could possibly have been spawned by anything so lumpy and imperfect as a human being so Mm. considering Mm. that this fiasco is further in time from where we are now than it is from world war ii in the opposite Mm. direction maybe it's not worth that much of a grouse but i don't know (laughs) <laughs> it is it's all formative horrible. though wasn't it you know that's the thing it's, <laughs> it's I, I, I'm actually feeling sorry for the cars at this point I think they're beginning to feel <laughs> as immobilised and humiliated as some of the women you know as if they're kind of mutely saying look if we could auto ignite if we could self propel we'd be f- rooming the fuck out of here yeah it's just a shame one of them isn't Christine <laughs> <laughs> but I like this song right I know it's not you very what? good I know it's not very good it's not a weighty groove and <laughs> You know, but there are, there are thousands of worse records than this which still exist, right? And when I was eight, I thought it was catchy. And I was mm. in... Intri- oh, come on. Who doesn't like the spell-out bit? Who mm. who does not like the bit where it goes, she is the dyspeptic. She is I <laughs> still infectious. She is S, <laughs> super squashy. She is C, cylindrical. She is O, which it does stand for, right? O mm. does stand for O. Yes. And there aren't mm. any other words that begin with O. Well, no wonder this was a big holiday hit, because once again, mm. like Baltimore and Tarzan Boy, there's a bit where you could just go, O! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, that's that's gold for, for a song like this. It's true. But I mean, if look, you can get it, some twats in Union Jack shorts to hold both their pints up while you're <laughs> singing it, then you're on to a winner, aren't you? Yeah, I, look, I know they've arrived a bit late with this sound, and it's mm, all a just bit, a bit. It's all a bit Invicta plastics, but <laughs> it serves more of a purpose than Enola Gay because at least some people have had a good time while it was playing, including mm. me when I was eight. At, 
receptions for various doomed family weddings. Uh, <laughs> you know, all hept up on cheese footballs. I've got nice memories of this song, you know. Um, right. And if nothing else, you can't help but be intrigued by the fact that this group is called Ottawan, as yeah. in a person or thing native to Ottawa, Canada. Um, yeah. Because how many other groups on this show genuinely have something about them that makes you think, what, I didn't see that coming? Yeah. It's something. I mean, it's not much, but... It's like calling your disco band Brumme. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not saying that grants them free entry to the, the, the hall of rock and roll greats, but in a, <laughs> in a cavernous NCP car park, stewarded by Dave Lee Travis on <laughs> heat, it's, <clears throat> it's something wholesome to cling to. Well, it's actually the most wholesome element of this performance. It's certainly the least sinful aspect of it. That's true. (laughs) So the following week, D-I-S-C-O dropped one place to number three. This was nearly a number one, fucking hell, and slowly descended down the charts, still remaining in the top 40 a month later. The follow-up, You're OK, only got to number 56 in December of this year, but just when we thought we'd seen the back of them, they responded with, Hands up, give me your heart, which got to number three for two weeks in September of 1981. D-I-S-C-O finished the year as the fifth best-selling single of 1980, one behind Super Trooper by ABBA and one ahead of The Tide Is High by Blonde. It would have a second life when Entrance did a landfill rap version that got to number 11 in April of 1997 and a third life when Chico Slimani took it to number 24 in August of 2006. Chico is the only pop star whose house I've been in. (laughs) Yeah, Is there a story attached? I did an article for the Daily Mirror before he was on X Factor or whatever when he and somebody else called Mac Attack were lap dancers and they had a lap dancing night at uh, Caesars called Lap Attack. And I was a trainee lap dancer for the night. Went round Chico's house and he, he showed me the ropes. Nice. Oh. So he, got, he had some ropes? No, no. <laughs> did you just look at them or did you get to experience? <laughs> I wasn't as successful as I was as I was a male stripper. Hmm. When I was a male stripper, you could get away on your chutzpah and your, your have-a-go-ness. But being a lap dancer for women, you had to essentially be a brick shit house. Yeah. But the problem was that they gave me an officer in a gentleman outfit and I, I just looked like a fucking Skegness deck chair attendant. <laughs> Not a good look. <laughs> and there appears to be two official Otter ones still in existence. One based in Dusseldorf, the other in St. Petersburg. And of course, Daniel Vanguard is best known today as being the dad of one of Daft Punk. That's right, yeah. I just imagine Otter One would have just long ago bought the little private Mauritian island, you know, next door to Trio, you know, the yes. geese who did Da Da Da, which is one of the top five best selling ever singles or something like that. It's probably why we don't hear an awful lot of them these days. Special. 
special top of the pops disco, which was performed to Ottawa and amongst all the cars. Talking of cars, there are lots of cars, of course, at Birmingham for the most show this year, and you're you're at the show as well, there, aren't you? Yeah. Just showing yourself around generally and yourself. Yeah. Oh, they get all the best ladies at the most show, but we pinched a few for tonight. Now I think we'll have a look at the charts from number ten upwards. George Benson, Love Times Love, excellent record, goes up 11 places to this week's number 10. We could have had George Benson. Mm. Yeah, excellent record, just not for kids, only footballers. Yes. <laughs> from 14 to number 9, it's the curtain song from the Nolans, Gotta Pull Myself Together. The Lovely Eggs. Down four places to number eight. Tweet, tweet, sweet people, and the birds were singing. Oh, oh, oh. Pause, pause, we've got to talk about this. Mm. Sweet people. Yeah. And the birds were singing. Fucking hell. Yeah. I have never heard that song. Completely Completely passed me by at the time. How the fuck did that get into the top ten? Yeah, it climbed as high as number four. Yeah. Very popular with people too lazy to switch on the demo setting on their Bontebi organ and listen to it with the window open, (laughs) which is... They're Swiss, you know. Yeah. 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 Godfathers of Swiss rock. You couldn't have had the young gods without the this sampladelic sound world of sweet people, yeah. They're collapsing the walls between art and life with their brave field recordings, definitely. Yeah. It's only a shame that the third man wasn't made thirty one years later than this record could have taken the place of the cuckoo clock in Orson Welles' (laughs) speech. I've seen sweeter looking people than the um, geezer on the left, I have to say. He is a Russell Grant with straightened hair. Yes. I think doughy people's a more opposite title. Mm. Don't look at the tears and, and one that in a few years' time is going to be an absolute classic is still at seven. If you're looking for a way out, Odyssey. Oh, this fucking band. They're men. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's very, very reverential about African-American women vocalists, isn't he? A sort of certain reverence comes into his voice. Mm. He doesn't feel entitled to tread. Okay, you're on. That's Matchbox now. And when you ask about love, moving up four to number six. People still have baggy trousers. This is Madness down to number five. Oh, why isn't this on fucking top of the pops? It's already been on eight times. See, look, he's not dancing like Andy McCluskey. Don't mind him. Up from five to number four, it's status quo. What's your proposal? Doing the nose thing again. This is what you get after a good group wank, however, there's no, you know. The police, X number one for a couple of weeks, now drops down to three with Don't Stand So Close to Me. The most embarrassing moment of my life was when my mum caught me dancing to this in front of the mirror. <laughs> As you are hanging limp over that drink in a bar in foreign parts this year, this is probably the record you remember. It's number two from Ottawa. I went to Skegness Butlins that year. Fell in the boat in Lake. And up from number nine last week to number one, very special for Barbara Streisand because it's her first ever number one hit across the two sides of the Atlantic. Here it is, Woman in Love. It's a lonelier place 
We cut back to Travis with the two most bored-looking women in the universe on his arms as he incorrectly calls the last single Disco again. He wangs on once more about how there are lots of cars in Birmingham and then asks the red-headed bored woman if she is going to be there. Yeah, she replies. Hmm. Just showing yourself around generally. And yourself, says Travis to the bored blonde woman. Yeah, she says. <laughs> oh, they get yeah. all the best ladies at the motor show, gushes Travis. He then brings this appallingly mm-hmm. painful segment to an end by running down the top ten. Fucking hell. The thing is, these ladies, again, are professionally tolerant, but we're not told who mm-hmm. they are mm-hmm. or what they do. Huh? O- only that they are just showing themselves mm-hmm. around generally. But they take yeah. it very well. And it it makes me think, we look askance at Dave Lee Travis sliming up to all these women, but what if they all mm. loved it? What if yeah. after this episode, 10 of them went back to his place to suck yeah. on one toe each while he lay back on the bed <laughs> with his hands behind his head, smoking a cigar yeah. the size of a telegraph pole? Mm. No, a pipe. Accompanied by the excellent sound of the electric light orchestra. <laughs> no, don't un- don't underestimate the unfairness and lack of logic in this life. I've been caught out that way myself. I mean, there's those two women that come off as Bodie and Doyle's girlfriends who get involved in heroin <laughs> in an episode of The Professionals, don't they? Yeah. Just <laughs> nothing about them. Being on top of the pops means fuck all to them. It's just mm. another gig they've got to turn yeah, up at. Yeah, yeah. I like to think that those two years aren't evidence of dumb airheadedness or whatever, but a kind of calculated, open, nihilistic displays of passive aggression. Mm. The mood which has been accumulating throughout the show. But all chaps, it's a grim life being a model at the motor show. In an article from the Daily Mirror two days from now, headline, Peril of Car Show Hand Rovers. (laughs) The menace of the hand rovers Mm. is driving models at the motor show to despair. Groping men are running their hands over the scantily clad beauties on the display stands and the worried models are having trouble escaping from their clutches. Mm. One girl was forced to lock herself in a car when an admirer tried to hug her too closely and another slapped the face of an elderly man who was attempting a naughty manoeuvre. The motor show maulers move into action when visitors pour onto the display stands. Under cover of a crowd, they can let their hands stray with little fear of being arrested. Model Kathy Burnett, 21, of Harrogate, said yesterday, The groping has been really bad at times. I had to hit one man over the head with one of our giveaway paper hats. (laughs) Another girl. 19-year-old Jackie Baker of Sheffield said, I have had my legs grabbed and been felt in other places several times. It really is a menace. But last night, show organiser Jerry Kunz says, Some of these girls are wearing very sexy outfits and I suppose you have got to expect red-blooded males to try it on a bit occasionally. (laughs) Bit of nominative determinism (sighs) in play there. See, girls, it's your fault for being female and putting on the outfits we make you wear. (laughs) Fucking amazing. That motor show preview with Noel Edmonds that we, we saw... 
Fucking hell. It opens up after Noel's not been killed by being dragged about by a helicopter. He's there amongst a display of some Mitsubishis. And there's models there. And they're essentially wearing plastic bra and pants with Mitsubishi logos over their tits and crotch. (laughs) Fucking awful, man. Mm. (laughs) After running down the top ten, he introduces this week's number one. Woman in Love by Barbara Streisand. Born in New York City in 1942, Barbara Streisand attempted to launch an acting career at the age of 16 when she did the rounds of Broadway casting agencies, but fell into singing when she won a talent competition at a gay club in Greenwich Village in 1960. Six months after being signed up to perform at the Bonsoir nightclub in Greenwich Village, she moved uptown to Blue Angel in Manhattan and made it to Broadway in 1962, appearing with Elliot Gould in I Can Get It For You Wholesale. A year later, she transferred to television, appearing on The Tonight Show, The Mike Douglas Show and The Ed Sullivan Show and opened for Liberace at the Riviera Hotel in Las Vegas. She signed to Columbia Records in 1963, putting out what were essentially soundtracks of her TV specials, but she wouldn't make an impression on the UK charts until 1966, when Secondhand Rose got to number 14 for two weeks in February of that year. But she'd have to wait five years for her next UK hit, when Stony End got to number 27 in March of 1971. She spent much of the 70s as one of the highest earning actors in Hollywood with only intermittent chart success over here. The Way We Were only getting to number 31 in 1974 and Evergreen getting to number 3 in 1977. But as the 70s tailed off, she switched back to recording, teaming up with Neil Diamond for You Don't Bring Me Flowers, number 5, December 1978, and Donna Summer for Enough is Enough, number 3, December 1979. This single, the follow-up to Kiss Me in the Rain, which failed to chart over here, is the lead cut from her new album, Guilty, which came out last month. It's been completely written and produced by Barry Gibb, and even the cover has Barry and Bob having a bit of a furkle. It entered the chart at number 22 a fortnight ago, then soared 13 places to number 9, and this week it soared again right to the top of Pop Mountain. And here's a mashup of the video and Legs and Co's performance from two weeks ago. It's very strange video this is, isn't it? Mm. When I reacquainted myself with it, I was convinced that the BBC had yeah. cobbled it together as it's essentially a cut and shut of film clips and stills. But no, apparently this is the official video. And fucking hell, what a shoddy mess it is. Yeah, yeah it's, it's bizarre just to sort of cobble together bits of previous movies. It's uh... Shall we go through it in order? So we, we start off with Got- photos of Bob and sexy lion Barrett in a clinch. Mm. Then a close-up of Barbara looking very pleased with herself. Mm. Then Barbara and Chris Christopherson on horseback in A Star Is Born, looking like they're about to defend Afghanistan from the Soviet Union. <laughs> then there's a still of Barbara with Robert Redford. And then it cuts to Legs & Co. 
And mm. I, I just assume that the BBC have, have put this together at very short notice and mm. just went, oh, you know what, fuck this. We've got some legs and code footage. Let's, let's put that in. But no, it carries on with the footage of Barbara in the bath with Chris Christopherson with no clothes on, and he actually rubs her shoulder. And obviously the BBC are going to have none of that. Mm. Then we go to the wedding scene in A Star Is Born, where there's some poor cow trying to give him a present, and she's left standing there for ages because they're, they're too busy looking at each other, which <laughs> I thought was fucking wrong and selfish of mm. them. Yes, yes. Then we get some more photos of Barbara, and then we get... Barbara on Ryan O'Neill's piano in What's Up Doc with an inevitable snog. Then it's back to snogging Chris Christopherson on the grass. The essential feeling you get from this is that Barbara Streisand's got you round her house and she's showing you a collection of slides and going, oh, look at all the, look at all the Hollywood man crumpets I've copped off with. Yeah. She's essentially the female Hollywood version of Jack and Stan in the On the Buses <laughs> trilogy, isn't yeah. she? She's yes. getting stuck into the hunky crumpet of Tinseltown. The one, the one thing I always admired about Barbara Streisand, I mean, you know, was that she never got a nose job or anything like that. <laughs> and I always thought that mm. was a gesture of defiance. But you kind of, as a kid, you kind of see everything that's all on telly or whatever you're exposed to so much you just watch stuff whether you like it or not sometimes but mm. Barbara Streisand films tended completely to, to, to pass me by really so none of this yeah. evokes any particular memories for me um, I, I remember more, more as a pop star really than as a film star I guess mm. but yeah I mean it's I mean a gluten free top of the pops wouldn't include this track that's for sure it's, no, I mean it's just um, not it's obviously it's the it's the give factor, you know, working its magic. But I mean, mm. Bee Gees when they're doing the disco thing are the most thrilling thing, some of the most thrilling music that's ever been made. But when they when they slow up, apart from things like How Deep Is Your Love, you know, it's usually mm. this sort of treacle, really, isn't it? And yeah. I remember the fact is that I know this track so well, and that's the difference between then and now. Really, kids don't have to endure this sort of thing if they don't oh, want yeah. to it's something they can expel instantly from their lives i mean alicia my daughter i mean you know she can just live in her own sort of apple curated bubble of music and tunes or whatever and there's mm. never going to be times in her life where she has to sit through some piece of mor build you know for people three or four times her age um yeah. but this is this was my fate you know this is the fate of anybody at this time i, mean, I would have heard and had to endure this countless times it was as inescapable as DLT's Grope Dungeon, basically. Um, and, um, and and also it made me think about the fact that at this point in 1980, there were probably people actively consuming and buying pop music and feeling invested and watching Top of the Pops or whatever, and maybe even going back to the records, that if they were alive now, they would be almost 100 years old. Um, mm. You know, there was always... You know, it was. I think it was still very much family show at this at this particular point. So you know, stuff like this lived alongside you know the OMDs and people like that. Already this year, we've had "Coward of the Counter" by Kenny Rogers. Yeah. Together we are beautiful by Fern Kinner. What's another year by Johnny Logan and "Crying" by Don McLean as number ones. Mm. And here's some more grown up shit mm. to toss onto the pile. Why? What's going on? Yeah. Well. According to this week's edition of Music Week, in a talk on music industry demographics, Bill Judd, who was the business planning manager of EMI, has stated that the population decline in the UK throughout the 70s means that, quote, the kids who should have formed the market base in an 80s creative selling cycle have not been and are not being born. 
which means there are fewer teenagers around in this decade to buy records or to form mm. a new creative push in music, as happened in the 60s and again in the 70s. So, yeah, effectively the charts are shit because our parents didn't have enough uh, unprotective sex and are still buying singles. The bastards. Makes absolute sense. He also said that if there is going to be a Beatles of the 80s, they're already about, they've already been discovered. <sighs> he assumed that it was the police that was going to be their job. To be the Beatles of the eighties, yeah. I always find it facile when people say things like the new Beatles, or whatever. So mm. there was only going to be one Beatles, and that was the Beatles, and that was their job mm. at that particular time, and that's not going to be you know replicated cyclically. You know, it doesn't work yeah. like that. Well, obviously, it means that one band that's going to sell shitloads of records and keep them in Judy Zook tour jackets. Who did actually have the, the biggest sing? I think that Don't Stand So Clip was actually the biggest selling single of this year. I seem to think. Uh, mm. yeah. Yes, but. There's a an upside to this semi takeover of the charts by really? old stuff for old people, because as a kid you react to what you find and you make the best of it and you find something there to to uh, stimulate the imagination, right? And it's funny that this song turned up on this episode because I was thinking about it really recently uh-huh. and I wanted to watch the video again because. I remember it sticking in my head at the time and being on my mind, right? As I think I said before, when you're about seven, eight, nine, especially if you're an only child, you can become quite fascinated in quite an anxious way with the adult world, right? And trying to make sense Mm. of the adult world. And whatever else this record was, it certainly seemed to be a direct transmission from the adult world slightly mysterious and unnerving because you don't quite understand it as a kid. And like every other disconnected fragment of the adult world that a kid might be able to observe in 1980, like bits of the newspaper, uh, snippets from someone else's dad's Monty Python album, uh, uh, pages from porno mags Mm. that you found in a bush, (laughs) the the, the sketches that you didn't understand on Not the Nine O'Clock News. Yes. It was just combed through and studied all these incomprehensible documents, you know, full of clues as to what was surely to come. Mm. As if it was like something you had to decode using whatever primitive knowledge that you'd gathered already and the sometimes misleading suggestions of your friends. Mm. So it's true that kids today are sealed in their own bubble of their own stuff. I don't know if that's wholly positive. Mm. I remember seeing this video. Yeah, not necessarily, definitely. I remember seeing this video full of men with muscles and bushy beards embracing this woman who didn't look like a girl, right? Mm. All of it was coded adult, right? And the strange weariness and quivering emotion of the song. And what it reminded me of was going around the houses of my mates whose parents were all slightly younger and more modern than mine, Mm. and observing bits of their relationships, almost all of which were heading for divorce, or else they'd already separated and got back together, you know, for the sake of their kids. Mm. Looking at all of that, I'm thinking, fucking hell, this isn't top of the pops. Yeah. More than anything else, the weird sense that sex had happened in this house. Yeah. Right? And maybe still did. The most confusing and spellbinding thing of all, barely real, 
right? Like at that age, sex was like paranormal activity, <laughs> right? You never saw it or experienced it. You barely even knew what it was, but you heard about it all mm. the time. And it had this mm. mysterious psychological power. Like just the thought of being in a building where it had happened yes. was overwhelming yeah. and mind-expanding. I felt like this when I was 18. <laughs> <laughs> then you add to that this concept of relationships, right, which is what this song is about. Adults having relationships, not being mm. boyfriend and girlfriend, Yeah, or, you know, having it off. It's a relationship or a, a marriage, this weird connection between adults who – didn't seem to like each other very much or ever have any fun. What was mm. this? Why People devoting their lives to misery and duty and missing out on everything, right? Yeah. And I never got a sense of that from my own parents because they never argued mm. and they never gave any suggestion of having the slightest interest in sex. So I was fascinated to observe this in other people's houses yeah. and try and work it all out, all the rules and the logic of the adult world. And the closest I ever got to an answer was what I found in this record and this video, which, yeah, clearly from the title down, is a song for and about grown adults with what they called sex lives. Mm. But there were no children in this room. I mean, you get a similar adult thing from late period ABBA records, but ABBA at least seemed to acknowledge the presence of kids. They were just very Swedish in how open they were in our presence. That made it less mysterious, right? This is after bedtime. The door's closed. You know, it's grown-ups time. Maybe someone is crying. Mm. And what came across is a feeling which didn't seem to make any sense to me at the time, which was, uh, okay, this is about a combination of pride and emotional helplessness. Right. Mm. Nobody singing for kids or teenagers ever carried themselves the way Streisand does on this record. Right. It's like as an adult, you're terrified and suffering, but you're opening yourself up to more of it and mm. simultaneously holding your head up high. Right. And the pride and the helplessness are codependent. It's like it seemed that the adult thing was not to change things or to run away but to suffer and tough it out and wear that as a badge of honour, a mark mm. of being truly adult, because adults are the craziest people. And I never knew an adult well enough to ask them, why don't you just give up and leave, walk away, go and have some fun and fucking cheer up a bit? So I never <laughs> heard the answer, which would have been, mm. well, it's not that you don't, it's that you can't. Mm. And I'm really glad I never heard that because I would have given up on the spot. I mean, I'm a bit older than you by this time. So I didn't see any of that, Taylor, and just thought, oh, fucking hell, this is cat shit. <laughs> fucking hated this song. Like David said, it was the fucking monolith that you had to endure if you wanted to watch Top of the Pops or listen to the radio or the Top 40 rundown at this time. Yeah. And I can recall every time it came on the radio or on Top of the Pops, just sitting there, just praying that they'd fade out before the bit at the end where she goes proper Nana Muscore and just starts fucking howling. It's a ride! I demand! I fucking <laughs> hated that mm. bit. Yeah, I quite mm. like it. Mm. It's like going round your mate's house 
and being alone in the living room and seeing the joy of sex on the bookshelf. <laughs> and you rip it down from the shelf and open it up and it's just some drawings of some bloke with a beard <laughs> just masturbating. Yeah. And it's like, oh, is that it then? Is yeah. that all there is? I'll tell you what, though. The best thing about this record, I think, is not really the song, which is, yeah, it's not one of the stronger Bee Gees emissions. I think her singing is the best thing about this song. Right. Like, regardless of how lovely the sound of it is, I think that's where all the feeling is coming from. Um, I mean, it's a showbiz professional, right? She's like a, a pure Broadway singer. And yet, somehow, the voice is the one raw and wild element on this track. Mm. You know, like Those big notes are not to everyone's taste. No. But they have a... a a force and a desperation to them yeah which may well be acting but it sounds completely genuine to me like or you know as genuine as a any confessional singer songwriter doing their heart-rending ballad on stage for the 14th consecutive night Mm. you know it's only acting like that's acting Mm. and i was genuinely astonished listening to this record for this for the first time in years Mm. to find that I've caught up with it and I quite like it and I'm not Mm. sure that that's a good thing. But like... Like most of adult life, it's not a choice. Yeah, I can I can see what you mean that it's an impeccable, you know, theatrical performance. But that's as much consolation to me, or as much thrill of joy to me, as the fact that the band don't play any bum notes. Really, Mm. (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. Bum notes, really. It's not real kids' issues, is it? No. Well, you might prefer a disco material. Mm. Have you you heard a version of Shake Me, Wake Me When It's Over? No. On the Four Tops. It's really good. Produced by Rupert Holmes. I never heard this till the other week. Um, I mean, you think, oh, it's a disco cash-in, right? Yeah, but it's actually, it's from quite early on. It's 1975, I think. Right. And it's it's great. It's really tasteless and really campy, but in a really exciting 70s way. It's all wah-wah and hi-hat and analogue synth. Just too much of everything Mm. in the mix. Pretty good. It's pretty cokey, but it's pretty good. So, Woman in Love spent two more weeks at number one, eventually giving way to The Tide is High by Blonde. The follow-up, Guilty, a duet with Barry the Sexy Lion, got to number 34 in January of 1981, and bar a cover of Elaine Page's memory that also got to number 34 in April of 1982, she'd have to wait until 1988 for her next big UK hit, when she teamed up with Don Johnson and took Till I Loved You to number 16 in November of that year. She's number one now, both sides of the Atlantic, which is great. Well, I hope you'll join me tomorrow for breakfast on Radio 1. And next week, Peter Powell, who himself has just got himself a new car he's proud of, will be doing Top of the Pops. Till then, on behalf of the whole gang, we leave you with Coffee and Casanova till next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>
Travis, back with the kids, tells us once again that Woman in Love is number one here and in America, before telling us that Peter Powell, who will be presenting next week, has got a new car. I'm doing that Alan Partridge shrug. (laughs) He then signs off with Casanova by Coffee. Formed in Chicago in the mid-70s, Coffee consisted of Leonora D. Bryant, Glenda Hester and Elaine Sims. Originally a soul act, they scored a local hit with Your Loving Ain't As Good As Mine, but in 1977 they succumbed to the lure of disco and were signed to Delight Records, the home of Cool and the Gang and the Crown Heights Affair. This is the lead cut from their WLP, Slippin' and Dippin', and a cover of the 1967 soul single by Ruby Andrews. It's currently number one in the smash hits disco chart, Usurping Master Blaster by Stevie Wonder. It entered the big boys chart at number 29 at the beginning of the month, jumped 10 places to number 19, and helped by the twin powers of Legs and Co, got up to number 13. This week it's stuck fast there at number 13, but it's still a perfectly serviceable bit of music to play out on this episode, and it's not D-I-fucking-S-cunting-C-O. <laughs> First question, chaps. Have you seen the Legs & Co. routine to this song? No. Fucking hell. Mm. They might as well have called the song, Look at our knickers, go on, look at them. <laughs> but this song, Mint and skill, I believe. And an indication that dance music is more than capable of undergoing its own purge and renaissance. Mm. You know, Mm. less of the cheesiness, more of the funk. This is, or should be, post-disco. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's the perfectly appropriate piece of music to the relief that you almost feel surging through the studio that this awful ordeal is actually over mm. i mean the way people are kind of getting down to it it's like this surge of energy as if the word has got round that like dlt has left the building in the um voxel convertible that he's persuaded them to keep can ride around till monday <laughs> he's fucked off the old man has left and now we can actually have some actual funk and fun mm. yeah although there's only 38 seconds of this on the original broadcast. Yeah. 38 fucking seconds. Mm, it's not right, the best is it? record on the show. Yeah. And this yeah. is the kind of song that you need to hear a bit more of it to, to, to let it seep into your system. Well, it's a groove, yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's a, but no, we had to make room for DLT, fucking an exhaust pipe and gurning. Mm. You know, mm. and groping. Who, who needs this gently thrilling rhythm when you could just have the grim up and down of Travis's fist on his own simian member, all (laughs) angry and purple, you know, with his Mm. sprawling jet black pubic forest glistening, (laughs) everything all all lubed up with Duckham's cue. That's (laughs) what the people want. That's what the people want, even if they don't think so. Mm. Do you think he slept in the Vauxhall convertible alone that night? (laughs) Not alone. Wouldn't have thought so. Dave Lee Travis. Everyone's getting down. The facade of the fucking car segment, that's gone now. The 4B2 wankers are trying to cop on to some of the girls in the audience, but there's one lad who's come dressed up as the Hoffmeister bear. Uh, he's latched right onto Sue. And she's, you know, she's giving it back. Mm. It's There's nothing sinister about it. It's like, hey, you're dancing, so am I. Let's dance while looking at each other. And there's also a bearded bloke in a soft leather jacket and shapeless cords who's sort of teacher dancing. Yes. Batting a balloon around as though he weren't one of the crew shunted out onto the floor to make up the numbers. I thought his job was was bringing a TR7. 
to the studio and making sure it didn't get scratched up by the youth. Yeah, it could well be. Because yeah, yeah. you see a lot of them about. You see more old people than usual for an episode of Top of the Pops. Yeah, it could be that, couldn't it? Yeah, yeah. they've just opened mm. the door and got out of the car. Mm. And right at the end, there's one lad who looks the absolute spit of Jimmy Purser, and it did take a lot of rewatchers to establish that it probably wasn't. Yeah. The fact that he didn't shout, Hello, Mum! <laughs> Guess who's on the end of this episode of Top of the Pops then? That, that kind of swung it for me. Yeah, although mm. that, is a, that is a sort of archetypal face, isn't it, Jimmy Percy? The... The big eyebrows mm. and, and dog eyes. Mm. There's a lot of those walking around. But it's, yeah, mostly this is the spectacle of people trying to look like they're in a disco while hemmed yeah. in by two door saloons and yeah. having to wear hats branded with the logos of the, the spark plug companies. Um, Except the mm. except the girls who are obviously models who don't have to. Yeah. But I mean, this is the only thing on this episode that you can dance to, really, isn't it? So they had to put it at the end. Yeah. But it's uh, yeah, oh, great. I always imagine a woozy George Best dancing to this with Miss Border <laughs> Television at like Flippers <laughs> Nightclub, Marbella, you know, and finding the lyrics hitting a little close to home. Yes. Either that or. Uh, Chick Brody when that dog jumped up at him. <laughs> Another one for the teenagers there. Fucking <laughs> Sorry, I'm tired now. <laughs> it's an indication that disco's going to transform. I mean, Shalimar have already been in the charts. The, the solar sound is kicking in. Mm. And British people are picking up on it. You know, this kind of stuff is always going to be welcome in the charts throughout the early 80s. And, and good show to that, I say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the following week, Casanova dropped two places to number 15. The follow-up, Slip and Dip, only got to number 57 in December of this year, and they were never heard from again. And that closes the book on this episode of Top of the Pops. What's on telly afterwards? Well, BBC One kicks on with Blankety Blank, featuring Tim Brooke Taylor, Lorraine Chase, Noel Gordon, Larry Grayson, Roy Hood, and Sylvia Sims. What a fucking lineup that is. Uh-huh. Who do you think's in mm. the nutter seat? Oh, Timbo. Uh, yeah. It wouldn't be Noel, would it? Wouldn't be wouldn't be our Nolle. No, no. <laughs> No, they wouldn't put Larry Grayson. No, Larry Grayson is a seat one That's followed by the first episode on the new and final series of Rings on Their Fingers, the sitcom starring Diane Keane and Martin Jarvis. Mm. After the nine o'clock news, it's the eighth part of Mackenzie, the drama series about a builder in London from 1955 to 1974, followed by Question Time, featuring Roy Hattersley and Nigel Lawson, the news headlines, and they finish off with a repeat of Kojak, where Telly Savalas pretends to be a bent copper in order to bust a narcotics ring. BBC Two is 15 minutes into more fucking snooker than it's the latest in the series of BBC television Shakespeare, The Taming of the Shrew, featuring Susan Penhalligan, John Bird, John Cleese, Captain Peacock and Shuey McPhee. Fucking hell, what another lineup that is. Mm. That's more impressive than Blankety Blank. <laughs> Crossroads just dominating television tonight. Yeah. After a 10-minute preview of the Ludovic Kennedy travelogue, Great Railway Journeys of the World, it's Newslight and highlights of the snooker. 
ITV has just started Benny Hill, and they follow that up with TVI looking at the people who are organising Ronald Reagan's presidential campaign. Then Arthur Daly's reunion drink with his old regiment ends up with his best mate, played by Brian Glover, going AWOL, having it off with a prostitute played by Georgina Hale, throwing his trousers out the window and losing them to the bin man. Naturally, Terry McCann is dispatched to sort it all out. (laughs) After the news at 10, it's a regional politics programme and they close out the night with Lou Grant and what the papers say. So, boys... What are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? Well, I don't think I would have quite had the sort of... uh, I'd have been sexually, politically advanced enough to be kind of tut-tutting about Dave Lee Travis's Mm. egregious um, between-song performance. Um, Oh, it it would have just washed over you, wouldn't it? Yeah, you know, that's just how it is. Yeah, this is it. Mm. You know, uh, there was that sort of fatalism about this sort of thing, really. And uh, I'd have been bitterly disappointed Mm. at the chart rundown that what we didn't get to see... Yes. I, I, I think I would have been quietly resentful of this. I think I'd have been talking about what it would take to grow up to be like Dave Lee Travis and have mm. all those lovely ladies around you hanging off your arm, mm, yeah. not realising that the actual answer is narcissistic personality disorder. <laughs> uh, very much the long straw to draw from the closed fist of mental illness in terms of your own happiness and your own progress through life hey you might even end up president of the united states yeah mm-hmm. let the haters hate unfortunately most of us got the shit ones that end up with you shivering in a flat with a broken shower <laughs> fully aware of everything you've ever done wrong and unable to put it right quack quack oops <laughs> what are we buying on saturday well i would have bought um, enola gay by that fine band orchestral news in the dark mm. And that set me on my dancing path of uh, many yes. decades hence. Good to see you didn't forget them when the time came to write a book about your, uh, your journey <laughs> through electronic music. <laughs> oh, I had to make, I make many sacrifices, murder many babies, you know. Um, I'd also bought the old Casanova. If if yes. if that 38 seconds had managed to kind of seep me into my consciousness, you know, if I hadn't just already switched over or stormed out in disgust or whatever at this point, I would definitely have acquired that. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Nowadays, I'd be buying coffee. Um, I mean, back then, as an eight-year-old, my favourite of these songs will almost certainly have been Otto on. Mm. Uh, and, you know, when you look at it coldly, what else here is honestly that much better? And what does this episode tell us about October of 1980? It's, yeah, it's still, yeah, the age of the dark rafters. Um, mm. I think there is perhaps a sense that... Um, Despite if you, you know, there's a lot of quirkiness about, and I think a lot of people thought that the implication of punk would just be a lot of quirk, new wave quirkiness, whatever, you know, anything from madness to Elvis Costello and its or OMD, lots of like jerkiness. And what people didn't really, I don't think people, well, post punk in terms of Wire and Joy Division never really got a sniff in the charts, but um, no. that next wave of like beginning with like Human League, which is just coming through ABC, all that kind of stuff. When punk, go, you know, ex punk goes pop and seeks to kind of infiltrate and um, and create a sort of idealized version of pop. That's not quite happening yet. So people like Gil, Gilbert O'Sullivan might think, okay, I'm in the clear here. You know, um, there hasn't been this sort <laughs> of nuclear transformation of the landscape, leaving me um, charred and obliterated. I'm still standing. Um, but they were wrong, of course. Yeah, I think what it tells us about October 1980 is that it was not a safe place. 
Mm, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, if it wasn't gleaming, sweaty beard air and pipe breath zooming towards you, it was a mid-priced rust bucket car with shitty brakes and no power steering, <laughs> uh, driven by someone not wearing a seatbelt. I, mm. I don't know how any of us survive. Uh, this episode, uh, it did exactly what it said on the tin. It's cat shit. It mm. was cat shit then, and it's cat shit now. It just stands as a, a historical artifact that, you know, it would not surprise me if clips from this episode of Top of the Pops were being used in the BBC, showing new presenters how to not interact with the general public, yeah, particularly the the female part of that general public. Yeah, 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 definitely. Also, it's, it's funny, just from a musical point of view, though, having to endure an episode like this, it's actually formative if you go on and become a music journalist uh, or mm. a rock critic or whatever, because quite often a lot of the energy you get and a lot of the kind of invective you drive is having had to endure things like this. And it makes me wonder, if you live in a world where people don't yeah. actually have to endure awful music and bad music or mediocre music or even like Oasis or whatever, if that maybe precludes or cuts off the idea of pop criticism, rock criticism as we used to know it, in which the the negativity, the invective, was something that you kind of bounced off in order to celebrate the positive and the relief that I had. You know, I, I, I do wonder if everybody's just sort of in their bubble of listening to stuff that actually, you know, um, really suits them. Then uh, where are the future David Stubbses and Taylor Parks is going to come from? I ask myself. Uh, how how will that world manage without us? Yes, a chilling thought. Yeah, and on that note. We've come to the end of the latest episode of Chart Music, so all that remains for me to do is the usual promotional flange, www.chart-music.co.uk, facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast, twitter at chartmusictotp, money down the g-string, patreon.com slash chartmusic. Thank you, David Stubbs. Thank you. God bless you, Taylor Parks. Cheers, Al. It's been something that happened. (laughs) My name's Al Needham, and I am Disco. Sharp music. Rock expert David Stubbs. Rock expert David Stubbs. Hi, I'm David Stubbs. Rock expert David Stubbs. Rock expert David Stubbs Rock expert David Stubbs Bringing you a hell-blazing mix of hard rock and hard facts We're looking back on the year 1980 I was in high school back then In Kettering Back in 1980, a street kid like me had two choices Either you were down with the Nolans Or down with the Quo Status Quo Either you're in the mood for dancing or in the mood for rocking. I was heads down, down the line, all the way down, deeper and down with the quo. But in a school like mine, that could spell danger. Oh sure, I got my head kicked in a few times, my ass kicked. I'm thinking of you, Joanne Greenwood from Class 4A. The quo Ari never forgets. Still, I battled through. Sustained by the mighty licks of the quo at their hard-driving finest. Who could forget the riff to whatever you want? Da-da-da-da-da. 
He's a rolling and rocking and rocking and rolling rock expert David Stubbs. Status quo. Formed in 1962 at Sedgehill Comprehensive School, Catford, London. First smash hit, Pictures of Matchstick Men. Original catalog number 336-979-393-T-G. That's 336-979-393-T-G. Except no alternative. Since then, they've gone quite literally from strength to strength. I saw their frontman one time, Mr. Rossi, at the bar at London's Astoria nightclub. I called out to him, Hey, Paolo! He stared right through me. Asshole. Still, I never lost faith in the quo. Even after they went disco with You're in the Navy Now. Rockin' and rollin', rollin' and rockin', rockin' and rollin' and rockin'! If you want to hear more from me, rock expert David Stubbs, subscribe to me on YouTube. Address HTTPS full colon slash slash www.youtube.com slash watch question mark V equals QKLEH dash OOFD 8 percent T equals 134S. Rock on, Quo! And screw you, Joanne Greenwood. I'm Mark Haynes, and for the last 32 years, I've been a fan of professional wrestling. My friend Pete Donaldson from the Football Ramble, he hasn't. But in our podcast, Wrestle Me, the two of us subject the greatest spectacle in sports entertainment, WrestleMania, to the kind of rigorous scrutiny that ruins it entirely. GQ called Wrestle Me enrapturing. Shortlist said it's beautiful. And it's a hit with common people, too, with well over 400 five-star reviews on iTunes. Wrestle Me, available from all good podcast providers.